0: Couch wisdom. Couch wisdom, Hey, this is Todd Burns from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, Red Bull Radio's podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. If there's a sound you associate with the 1980s Berlin Underground, then there's a good chance Gareth Jones and Alexander Hakka had a hand in it. Hakka joined the toweringly influential. Einstürzende Neubauten shortly after the band's formation in 1980 at the tender age of 15. Jones, for his part, worked as producer and mixing engineer at the iconic Hansa Studios, adding an industrial edge to recordings by Depeche Mode, Tuxedo Moon, and Fad Gadget. In this lecture as part of the Red Bull Music Academy Basecamp Berlin 2017, Jones and Hakka discussed how their paths crossed working on Neubauten's music Berlin in the 80s and what it means to create a signature sound. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. For now, enjoy this bit of couch wisdom.
1: Herzlich willkommen im Meistersaal. Und herzlich willkommen, Alexander Hacke and Gareth Jones. Hallo.
2: Hello. Hello.
1: <laughs> this here has actually been the very first time, this song has been the occasion for the very first time that you were in this room, is that right?
3: Yeah, yeah, and the, the first time that at least, as far as I remember, uh, the first time that, that we met yeah, was in right. this room.
2: Yeah, that's as far as I remember as well now. It's become the official story. That's the story, right? We met in this room. But we, should... we think we really did. It's quite funny because we wanted to play, obviously, and um, the occasion of us meeting was when... I was working with Frank Tovey, now dead, of course. Rest in peace, Frank. And uh, and this song called "Collapsing New People" was inspired by Berlin and and Neubauten. And we invited them to come and play on the middle eight. But I think we think now that it's been they've been cut out of the radio edit.
3: It's the so-called the so-called radio edit. Because so.
2: yeah, obviously that's, <laughs> no more that's the video, that's the short version. So we, you know, anyway. So we were hoping to hear the Neubauten bit, but it's not there, not on the video. But anyway.
1: The um, artist is called Fat Gadget, we should probably mention him with his artist name as well. And you had had been working with him in London already, right? I don't
2: know, I think we did the whole album here. Um, uh, The album was called Gag. And the cover of the album is Fad wearing that feather suit. He's, uh, uh, and it's an Anton Corbin photo, actually. It's the first time I met Anton Corbin as well. And so that was a wonderful experience, you know. And it was wonderful meeting you guys and, you know, having you come in and set up and play on the middle eight. so. And that, I guess that was the start of a... I think I might already have met Blixer because I think he came to visit Daniel in, on a Depeche Mode session. And then we had the, I had the very great pleasure of making some records with... I think them. also
3: the birthday party we were recording in Hansa 2, while you were mixing Depeche Mode upstairs or something
2: like that, I, I think that was... The, the birthday day. party where, I don't think I was mixing Depeche, but I was mixing something else upstairs. Yeah. I was mixing something else upstairs and Daniel was here with the birthday party for sure. And I said, look man, come and look at this studio, maybe we... So anyway, it's a lot of history and it's a long time ago. But it's very important space. For yes, me we person.
3: spent we spent the formative years of our youth in this room.
2: Yeah, we did. Yeah, we did.
1: Did you you grew up in Neukölln, right? Or you were born in Neukölln, yeah. um, which was part of West Berlin? Um, for anyone who might not know, I did not know to be honest um, <laughs> until very recently. Uh, were you aware of Hansa Studios existing as a teenager or was that a totally different world that you thought you could never, never enter?
3: Yes, I, I was aware of it. I had an uh, older cousin, she's like four years older and she would listen to those David Bowie records and also she would scare the hell out of me with uh, Roxy music. As a little kid I was afraid of um, Brian Ferry's voice.
1: Okay. How <laughs> I, could, I couldn't I couldn't
3: stand I couldn't stand the vibrator. It would, would give me the creeps.
1: Mommy, Katrin's playing that music again. I think it's a really funny story that someone who would continue <laughs> to make music that is as scary as Einstürzende Neubauten would be scared of boxy music. But fair enough. Uh, <laughs> I don't th- I don't know if
2: Neubauten's frightening music. I never thought I thought of it as having dark edges and melancholy, but I never, I, I, I never thought about, I don't know, I don't know. I, it's not for me to say what the group was trying to do. I never had the impression the group was, try, was trying to shock people, but not frighten them necessarily. Let's
3: say, let's say it's passionate music and that can be frightening.
1: Is there such a thing as a frightening record to you then, Gareth?
2: Is there a fri- I'm not frightened by music, no, music doesn't frighten me.
1: That's a very good thing because it has been your job for many years now. Yeah. And uh, to go back to that, in, in the seventies, you start like late seventies, you started working in a few studios in London. Um, when when did you first become aware of Hansa Studios, or when did you first well got in, get invited to to move to Berlin and to work here?
2: I wasn't invited to move to Berlin. I kind of pushed my way in, you know. But um, I. I worked with a, 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 another a Neue Vela Band uh, in the early 80s or something, and um, the manager was a guy called Connie Konsek, and he said to me, I was very nervous young guy, and I wanted to go back to London to mix the record that I'd, I'd recorded with this band, because I just wanted to mix it somewhere I felt safe um, uh, and confident. But then Connie said, that's fine. Connie Konsek said, that's fine, but let me show you the hands mix room. And and I was very young and impressionable, and it was awesome. So so I said, okay, if if I have to, I'll go and look at the hands mix room, all right, Connie. And I kind of walked in the door, and I was like, wow, this is amazing. And the same with this room, more importantly, actually. I didn't, so first of all, I worked in a high-tech mix room upstairs. But then, of course, very quickly, I discovered they had this incredible room. Um, and, and just to say to everyone here, I mean, I don't know there's not... They, I can't see everyone. Let me have a look. Oh, yeah, there's quite a lot of people here. That's nice. Thank you for coming, everyone. Uh, when, when, we, when we used to make music in this room, it was pretty scummy, right? It, now it's like quite... They cleaned it up nicely. But,
3: <laughs> but basically, the, the the important parts, like the the wooden floor and the paneled ceiling and all that, that was already there. That And the, the stage the parts was that already
2: made... here pretty much, wasn't it? Absolutely. I think the stage was a bit more echoey. I think they firmed it up. I remember the stage being a bit bouncy, but... Yeah,
3: yeah, probably
2: but it all was more end... like Rises. Mm-hmm.
1: Was this Neu Deutsche Welle Band that you first mixed, was that Ideal?
2: Ideal, yeah, yeah.
1: That is, was that somehow in a similar scene as the things that you were doing back then or was that a completely different word?
3: Well, we, we all knew each other. We would all frequent the same uh, nightclubs, like, like the jungle and stuff. The jungle is mentioned in Ich stehe auf Berlin, you know. Like an, and we would, uh, so we knew each other and, uh, you know, we would make fun of Ideal basically, but but F.J. Krüger, who also passed away sadly sadly, yeah. many years ago. Um, we became we became good friends too. But in the beginning it was just the, you know, just like this chauvinist thing, you know, like oh, you, you pop tarts, you know, like
2: Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's what it felt like to me, like a different scene for sure. Yeah. But Berlin was very small scene then, wasn't it? So of course you guys knew each other, mm-hmm. you know. It was unthinkable that I would meet Blixer Bargeld through Depeche Mode, you know, but I did, because of Daniel Miller, really.
1: Was there, could you even have imagined to not meet those people? Did it feel as that size of a city where you you felt like you could maybe not find an entrance in a certain scene? Or was it really just those few bars where you went and if you went often enough on a Thursday then?
3: I think it was in, inevitable if you were moving about a certain scene, if you were if you were having certain interests, then then you would meet all the main people because it was just this little village, this this little island basically. But then, of course, if you weren't interested in this kind of music or in music in general, um, of course you could could go completely different ways like. Um, In Berlin, you didn't have the army, for example. There was no draft to the army, so uh, all of my classmates, you know, that wanted to play with guns, they joined the police force. And, um, you know, of course, they never met the people that I met.
2: (laughs) Except in a different uh, way. except (laughs) in a very different situation, yeah.
1: (laughs) It's very interesting of you saying that, because I always hear the stories of people who did not want to be in the army and then moved from West Germany to Berlin, because exactly. then you didn't have to be in the army, and never considered that obviously there were people in Berlin who really wanted to be in the army.
3: Yeah, or, you know, basically wanted to you know, be tough and play with guns, yeah, they would, they would join the cops.
1: Um, Back to when this video, or maybe not the video, but the song for the video was recorded, which I think was late '83, probably. You had been with Neubauten, kind of following them for like three years, but not all the time as an official band member, is that right?
3: Um when I first started playing with them in 1980 I was 14 years old and um so at one point it was decided back then that I should learn about other things of life um and um so they basically um they put me on vi- uh, vacation ich war beurlaubt and uh I know what you're gonna play now, um, <laughs> but um, yeah. So, but I I played with them in the in the very beginning, and then I didn't play with them for a while, for a short while, and then I came back as an engineer. Basically, I I decided, influenced by the whole industrial music scene out of England, I decided that I rather wanted to manipulate people than to be, you know, like a showgirl for them. And so I, I decided I wanted to be at the mixing desk instead, so I, I would do the live sound for Neubarten, very um, very selective engineering. If somebody played something I didn't like, I would play a cassette instead. And, and, uh, and then at one point they got bored on stage and I made my way back up on stage.
1: So basically you were so bad as a live sound engineer that they just had to make you part of the band.
3: Yeah, it was you know like like Gareth moved his way made you know, made his way into Berlin. I made my way back into the band. You know, I was just like,
2: that's interesting to hear that actually because I remember you. Now you've flagged it up as being very interested in the recording process. Yeah, and that's why I, I knew I, th- I knew that history, but I'd forgotten about it. Mm. So thanks for sharing that because I, now I'm going back there and th- I'm remembering just how in, involved and interested you were in the
3: absolutely the recording
2: yeah. process in a way, for instance, that Andrew wasn't particularly. No. You know, Andrew was very interested in building
3: instruments <laughs> People. and
2: hitting them, but he wasn't that interested in the recording process, I don't think. No, no, no. So, you know, and you obviously were. Yeah. yeah.
1: I wanna um, play a video that is like from your very, very early days, but before that, could you say about, about the other band members, how interested was everyone in technology? Because I think it's quite interesting in regards to what they actually played.
2: How interested were, what, the band members yes. in technology? Well, um, I don't. I don't know. I mean, it was a different uh, setup then. Like I said, I remember Alex being interested in the recording technology for sure. Um, Mark wasn't interested at all. Mark just. Wa- Mark was very much as a, like a, had a, like a management role in the band and a super important bass player. And
1: still, kind of has.
2: Obviously, right. a, a very important.
3: And the, sp- the sportsman, you wanted to have Mark on your team if you played table football or something like that.
2: Okay, okay, but he was. He but he he was. Ne- he had, and you know, obviously you know, lead vocalists being what they are, uh, the, uh, the lead vocal had to sound right, for sure, you know. If, if Mr, B- I mean, I love Blix's poetry anyway, so for me that was a joy, you know. But, so he was kind of interested in the whole vibe, because of course that's supporting the, 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 the lyric, you know. Um, Mufti was also I remember him as being pretty interested in very
3: technology. very yeah. interested yeah yeah, yeah. that's yep. with with uh, with Mufti with FM Einheit i experienced for the first time uh, music without a rotating medium for the you know with with Mufti with you we we uh, we experienced for the first time like the dat tapes the the, the and sampling the, and, and and also the what was the the, the format before that the, the on beta cassettes these P uh, the, the, the PCM tapes or yeah. something there was the first digital recordings but with Mufti I remember he was the first person to actually play me his new music coming from a hard drive so you would walk into a room and there was n- no rotation whatsoever, nothing was rotating, not a tape, not even okay, a small cassette. The hard set. drive
2: was spinning but you couldn't see it. You couldn't see it yeah, and
3: suddenly yeah. there was music and also with digital technology, yeah. you wouldn't hear the hiss, the mandatory hiss that everything else you would... would we love. Uh, <laughs> yeah, where everything would, would announce itself, you know, like, oh, watch out, there'll be music in a minute, you know, and then <laughs> digital music, you know, would, would just like come and go, what the hell is going on? Yeah, And so, movie, uh, Mufti was always very much into technology. I
2: agree with that. That's very much my memory of, of Mr. Reinheit as well, yeah. because w- when we made a, a track called, a 12-inch called, uh, Jürgen, I had an analog sampler that was made in Berlin called Mr. Lab. Do you remember the Mr. Lab? It had little mm. buttons on it. And I had a very, a very powerful but very simple early digital sampler that we were triggering from the Mr. Lab and Mufti was on it immediately. And I didn't know if he would be because I knew him before that as a very muscular beat maker, a physical <laughs> player. That's how I knew him before that, Hitt- hitting drums, playing beats v- very powerfully. And so I was a bit nervous bringing the sampler and the sequencer. And, but he was on it straight away because he, he, his mind moved to another, another level, you know, a, a, deep, a deep musical level. He got it. I mean, I think the whole band got it, but I, that was, a, I was nervous. You know, I thought, well, I'm going I'm to share this. Maybe they'll hate it. But he, he was straight, it was great. It was awesome to see because, you know, basically I thought he was a bit like a you know, caveman or something. <laughs> and, then, and then he turned out to be this total programming nerd as well.
1: You, you know, should meet some programming nerds. They can be cavemen.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Many of us are,
1: you it's know. It's not really a contradiction. No, exactly.
2: But you know, I, I, I it's, but there are some percussion, live percussion players who don't like sequencing. I know many great. Yeah. Or click tracks for that yeah, matter. Yeah, for instance. There are many, many, many great percussionists who were not interested in sequencing at all. Why would they be? Because they can play anything. But he was very interested immediately. Yeah. That's a anyway. different
1: thing though, because that's time-based and I think Mufti is interested in sounds, so he liked the sampler as he liked unusual instruments. Right? Well,
3: We were also that, that the idea, um, it came up, it's a completely different philosophical concept as to play music with instruments. If you play samples, you are playing events, actual events in time. You see what I mean? Like before that, you would with the synthesizer, you would try to imitate the sound of breaking glass. With sampling, you could just break the glass and then you know, sequence that actual event, you know, and that was a completely new thing, you know, you could, you would be, that you would have this, like, -like, uh, god-like, you know, delusions of grandeur, because you could rearrange events in time more than just playing music.
2: Yeah, no, I completely agree. And also, we were, um, in all the work we did together, and all the work I did with samplers. it was very much about capturing real events from the real world. Yeah. I was—I ne- personally was never interested in playing an oboe in a sampler, you yeah. know, or a violin Wipe. or something. I Wipe mean, it's quite big money now, it's quite Spitfire, and there's loads of big, sam- it's a big thing now mm-hmm. to have a bass, Scarby, and Spitfire, and loads of p- real pianos, in so- and that's all. That's kind of whatever, it is what it is, I think it's, I, I'm not interested, personally, I was always super excited by the idea of taking a sound from the real world, Muff. Yeah.
3: and also it it would give you new possibilities in terms of size see we would work with with these with these we had these tables that would uh, tell us the exact tape speeds for different keys right you, yeah. you you knew how to slow down a tape in order to transpose the music to a different key and with sampling you could do the thing where by like a tiny instrument, like a tiny glass, if you, if you play it back at a slower speed, it would become larger and the other way around, you know? So you could, you could make giant things tiny or tiny things turn them into giant objects.
2: And that's one sampling. of the, uh, it's magic, isn't it? Re- everyone's got a recording studio now because everyone's got a laptop. But one of the magic things about recording sound for me is that you can make, the quietest real sound, the loudest sound on the track, if you want to. Mm-hmm. You don't have to, but if you want to, I've done that. I made a track where the. And, and, and that's, that's amazing, you know? So you can record a really loud sound and it's really quiet in the mix. Mm-hmm. And then you can have a really quiet sound and make it really loud. Mm-hmm. That's kind of- But Gareth,
3: and, and you'll never get to play that video if we go on like this. Um, <laughs> That's all right, this is actually really
1: interesting. And I love how enthusiastic you're about the fact that you can do those things, because you've, you've sat behind mixing desks for like four decades and you still think it's a miracle. Well, yeah, <laughs> it's,
3: yeah, yeah. No, also what he- well, uh, I'm a bit slow. <laughs> Also what Gareth used to do is, uh, like, particularly in this room, what you could do in this room very nicely is, we would sit in the middle of this room on the floor and uh, record very tiny sounds, but Gareth would put put the microphones through really heavy compression in our headphones. So we would sit in here with the headphones on and, and record tiny Tiniest, you know, dropping the tiniest objects on the floor and stuff like that. And we had to move very carefully because the headphones were so compressed and
2: so loud, you know, that if we went like this, you know, we would have blown our ears out. So yeah, that... I, I had that with, I got that, I, I had that experience the first time I went to the Far East in the 80s with a recording Walkman. And mm. it's this is really obvious, right? But you, I put the headphones on and then turned up the volume of the, the microphone, and then it was exactly like, well, exactly, it was pretty much like the real world, only louder. <laughs> it was great, it was just really great. <laughs> Listen, it's like the real world, but it, it blew my little mind. It blew my little mind. That's
1: I'm gonna play a bit of this video because it blew my mind okay. a bit, and then we're gonna continue with those stories.
0: Hey there, at this point in the lecture, they played some music. Unfortunately, due to copyright reasons, we can't play that here. Yeah, I'm bummed too. Anyway, uh, enough from me, let's go back to couch wisdom. You was
1: 16!
3: I was 16, yes. That's me at, at the uh, Tempodrom, which was actually right over there on Potsdamer Platz. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you, That's, um, that was from the Große Untergangs-Show, das Festival Geniale Dilettanten, at the uh, Tempodrom, which that festival spurred a kind of a fake musical movement called Geniale Dilettanten, where it was also imperative to misspell the word Dilettanten. <laughs> and um, and uh, that was uh, Christiane F. playing guitar there with me. and. Um,
1: was your partner Did yeah, you didn't say partner when you were 16 you said girlfriend. no she was I guess.
3: my first girlfriend ah yeah and um,
2: that yeah. is a bit scary i must say <laughs> i was a little bit frightened i was boasting before about not frightened. i was a little bit frightened seeing that
3: <laughs> yeah and i was yeah and i was 16 and i was wearing her leather jacket that tells you how skinny i was
1: 1981 fourth of yep. September, yeah, 1981, even have the exact date here. <laughs> I wanted to play that, not at last, because I think, I mean, Neubarton to me has always been a band that you want to see live. Did you see Neubauten live before you worked with them?
2: Probably not. I might have done, I can't remember. The thing is, I was such a, I, was, I didn't go out much, and I was very obsessed with being in the recording studio. Most of my musical experience has been listening to records and later CDs and whatever, streams and shit. So I'm a kind of headphones guy or sitting at home with the speakers. That's kind of how I've experienced music in my life. And it was hearing music on speakers that made me want to get into recording studios and help record records Um, because I was obsessed by it and I thought it was just incredible. So in, so in other words, I, I, I never came to recording trying to capture some kind of live. It wasn't that I thought, oh, these bands are great live. I must get them in the studio. I kind of saw the studio as a whole separate thing, you know. I never cared how difficult it would be to make the recording work on the stage. That was never my problem, uh, and I was never that interested in it. But I mean, having said that, I saw Noi Band. I do, I have seen the band many times live, and they were, I just saw them recently in London at the Forum, and it was, an au- incredible, incredible gig. Thank you. So, if you. anyone's not seen the new, I don't know if it's. Uh, it's is it Berlin Happened already? Berlin's. G-
3: Were we looking into Berlin for the fall? So, we might be. Yeah, yeah, might I do, mean, might anyway. It. I was,
2: mm-hmm. It's a long time since I've seen the band live, and it, it was a great show. So, I do love live music, but it was just for the. And also, when I was young, what I'm trying to say is I was learning how to make recordings and a lot of that seemed to be staying in the studio all the time, all hours, and just working all the time in the studio. So, stupidly, some bands, I would never work with a band now without meeting them and going to the rehearsal room and hopefully going live and getting to know them. But sometimes, back in those days, I would kind of meet the band in the studio on the first day of the recording session, you know. So,
3: a different life, different times. I can I can relate to that. Also, for me, it, there's the, the one aspect of you know like the performance and the excitement of seeing bands live. But also, what I was, what I was really interested in, what was really magic for me, and still is really magic, is when you have a pair of really nicely aligned stereo speakers. And you sit in the sweet spot between two speakers, like you do in a studio between your near-field monitors. You actually don't hear the music coming out of the speaker, out of the speakers. You cannot point at the direction anymore. It kind of materializes, like right in front of you, in this space between the speakers. And that's for me. That still is about listening to music on, on stereophonic equipment, that, that still is like the most amazing thing, you know, that you, you suddenly you hear this, this, this wonderful sound in the middle of the room, even though you have those two speakers there, it's like right there in front of you, I think that's fantastic.
2: Yeah. And that, that, that's a, an experience that's very repeatable now when we're working, if you turn the computer screen off. Uh, because yeah. the, the experience, the, we've had the privilege of having the magic of that experience in, in pre-digital technology, where the, machi- the music's on tape, so you're not looking at a screen. So if you want to have a really amazing listening experience, you might turn the lights down and press the tape machine, and I can only get that now in my little workroom. Mm-hmm. If like to, I've got a, like a button on the side of the screen because I've yeah. got a separate screen, and I turn the screen off, and then I can kind of sit because when I, my eyes are focused on the screen, the, it's it's harder to be have that magic experience. For Absolutely,
3: me. yeah. You listen, you listen differently when you look at a yeah. at a computer screen. That's 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 definitely true. And also, still, when we work with Neubauten, we uh, we insist on being these five <laughs> moocs in a room. Uh, who do not look at computer screens. Yes. You know, so we, we do have the engineer that, that uh, takes care of editing and stuff like that later on. Uh, you know, we we mm-hmm. assign him to you know, like tasks that he needs, chores that he needs to do. But while we play music together, we don't look at computer screens. Right
2: on.
1: But you talked about this hard drive earlier, right? And when you first started working together, there was no computers involved. No. No. They, they no, were no. Like the hard drive that was much later probably more the, like... Yeah, mid- the
3: hard drive was much later, I was, I was just s- s- telling that story to illustrate how, how technology-savvy Mufti was. Yeah, um, No, no, when, when we were working here it was all uh, 24-track uh, tape machines which also were amazing. For, we kind of worked our way up from 4-track to 8-track to 16-track and then here you had Two uh, 24 track machines sync to each other, which was amazing. And we, earlier we were talking about that, that, uh, that uh, there's a loop actually going on in, um, in Collapsing New People, which is like a printing machine that Gareth recorded somewhere in Berlin. And in order to do that, um, he made a loop of it. And a loop back in the days meant an actual physical. Tape loop, and and uh, I was talking about this for another thing about the Hansa Studio uh, recently, and we would have these tape loops going across from the, the the control room was over there where the where the bar is right now, yeah. and we would have these these tape loops, you know, like supported by microphone stands, going all the way through the, the whole length of the hallway, you know, in order to get like really long tape loops yeah. of things.
2: Yeah. And, because, um, yeah, because we were a bit crazy. And, and, <laughs> yeah. the, uh,
3: and we, would do, we would do things with Neubart, we would do things, we would, we would cut little holes, you know, with a, with a uh, you know, what do you call them, like a whole locker bunch of... with a hole puncher. We would cut little holes in it while it was going by or, you know, or burning it, or burning the tape while it was going by and stuff like that.
2: <laughs> and and, and ta- Yeah, tape loops, with, it's a thing, isn't it? It's like, uh, you know, with analog technology, like that, anyone knows it. Who's got guitar pedals or anything? You know, it, it, with analog technology and wires and thing and amps and tape loops, it's much easier to make a creative mistake or to make a, a new discovery that you weren't planning on making. I find it quite difficult with a computer to I mean, to make a mistake. I mean, obviously, I can open a software synth that has a sound that I wasn't expecting. But the kind of creative mistakes that you can make with analog technology are yeah. really awesome.
3: No, mistakes on a computer are dreadful. That yeah. just means that you have you, to reboot, and they're that, usually that, shit, right?
2: <laughs> and that you, and
3: that the the show kind of stops at that moment. You yeah. know, you just go like, "Oh, what's going on?" You know, like you get
2: these glitches or whatever. But mistakes with analog can be hugely creative. Wonderful. Yeah, yeah.
3: And and the whole thing about analog is is also that it's an actual physical thing, you know, like we um there is this um this convention here once a year now called the Super Booth, where all these yeah. these guys meet that that work with the Euro rec with those those uh you know, like there's a whole community of people that build little synthesizer modules in a certain format and um and it's great because these guys i mean aside from the fact that it's just like you know like nerds meeting you know for uh for their uh model Eisenbahn or you, you know like min- miniature model trains and it's like, "Oh, I, I need to get a new steam engine for my you know like uh, but the thing about that about that fascination and and about analog working with actual tape and stuff and uh, is that it's an actual. Physical process. It's not. It's not like moving this glass from here to here means a certain combinations of zeros and ones. But I actually move the you glass. You move the glass. You actually move the glass. Right. Yeah, I know. And
2: on the computer, it's all imaginary. I mean, it's a bit, you <laughs> yeah. hear melodies and shit. You know, yeah. I'm not knocking it. I yeah. get it. The comput- I, We all use computers. Yes. It's awesome fun. But it is actually not real. And every once in a while, you have to go and say to yourself, it's just a fantasy behind a glass screen what I'm doing. You know, which is different. I want to just follow up what you're talking about. Because I borrowed a little modular for those who are coming to the base camp. I borrowed a little modular from Schneider's. From our uh, yep. friend Andreas, which is Schneider.
3: which is the the church of, the church of, of modular, modular geekism,
2: and, and <laughs> very important in my life as well. This guy, but uh, that might be another story. But I borrowed a modular, uh, and I I have the, so I've got one all the all the devices in this module that I borrowed I have in London. Okay, so I know it pretty well. So I'm sitting in the back room, in a little studio down there, and I'm plugging it up to make a noise before you guys arrive for the base camp, because I thought, well, I want to have a bit of a noise on it, just for a vibe, you know. So, and then it starts making this incredible noise, and I'm thinking, they must have changed this module, because I I have this module, (laughs) and I've never heard it sound like this. And then I look at it, and I've plugged something in wrong. But it sounds incredible. And I yeah. had exa- exactly that kind of discovery just this afternoon. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Yes. <laughs> I plug that in there, it does that.
3: Yeah. You know? And that's, that's the whole magic about places like this and, and working with analog technology and stuff. It's, uh, I find, in my opinion, it's the, uh, the uh, ritualistic aspect yeah. of... Of that, because of that, because you are you're making a conscious decision to do something physically, to, to do a to do something, rather than uh, having the assumption of an actual event, which is which it is in the in the digital world. It is just the uh, basically the digital world is is just the bus map or the the, the, the uh, schedule. The digital world is the bus schedule, but the analog world is to take the actual bus and go from A to B, yeah. that's that where I see it. Yeah.
1: M41. <laughs>
2: that works for me because I'm very interested in process. And part of what we did together in this room uh, when, we ha- when I had the great pleasure of working with Alex and the band uh, was to, 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 to embark upon a process where we didn't really know how it was, we knew we might, you know, Mr. Bargelt might have had the lyrics, Mr. Einheit might have had a beat, you know, Mr. Hacker might have had a guitar riff or an idea. But more importantly, almost, was we all committed to a process, which was to come in here and build some shit and see what happened and choose the good bits. And, and, and it's that, that's so important, I think, I'm not the kind of person who, imag- I can't imagine what a record's going to sound like, but I do like going on in the process. and saying, well, look, if we all get together in the room with some amps and some guitars and some musicians and, uh, and a tape record- a, a recorder, we'll probably make something awesome. And, and, and we did. And also, in the physical
3: world, you have to make the conscious decision of when to not play much more than in the digital realm, you know?
1: Let me, let me tell you maybe, um, what I find the hardest to imagine when talking about recording on tape, is that when you delete a thing or you destroy a thing by burning the tape, it's gone is today you have a backup, and you have a backup of your backup, and then maybe you have a cloud, or whatever, or maybe you don't have all of these things, but then you're a bit stupid, probably. Um, But then you had 24 tracks, or 48 tracks maybe, and then when, when they were full, and you wanted to do a thing again, it meant getting rid of the thing that was on the tape before, and then it's gone.
3: Yeah, there's a there's a, in Algeria I think it is where they where the the whole music industry worked on cassette tapes the recording studios where they where they worked at those Algerian chep mami and all these different Algerian musicians they they only possessed one single 24 reel and the entire music of the country for 20 years
2: was Played recorded
3: on one, on one reel of tape. You know, it was just like recorded over and
2: over. Yeah. You know, that's the model now. <laughs> if you're lucky enough to work on tape now, you, you find an old bit of tape that's been used before because it's so expensive. Yeah. You know. Yeah.
1: But I mean, like, more in the, in the actual writing process, the process you talked about earlier, yeah, it, that you had to, like, as a band, you know, one maybe liked the guitar sound and the guitarist didn't, or the other way around, or you were saying it's great, and then you had to come to a decision of redoing it absolutely. or not. you that's couldn't, what's like, good keep every it. copy.
2: Yes. That, yeah, that's the bonus. That's what's good about it. I mean, you're, you, you know, that's what makes it so powerful. Because you have to say, you know, we, we, we've we've all been there with a the full reel of tape, you know, and then and someone and uh, let's say the guitar solo, you know, and then the guitar the lead the guitar solo player says that I can I can do better than that, and then everyone looks a bit nervous because they know exactly what that means, and then you have to like step up and do better. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. Or if
3: you if you would drop in, you know, say like, uh, I think that was a really good tape take, except. The first two bars, I fucked those up. I want to redo the first two bars, and, you would, and then you would have the, you know, like the hotshot engineer that just goes like, bop, bop, you know? You know, and then you just like, you know, we just like get like that that spot, you know, that was, you know, that was sportsmanship, you know, back then. Exactly, it's
2: exciting, Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. that sportsmanship, yeah. yeah. And, and also it's trust, a lot of trust. <laughs> oh, yeah. the engineer has to trust the guitarist, and oh, yeah. the guitarist and, has to trust the engineer. It's and, team building.
3: And you could have real life-changing, traumatizing catastrophes, <laughs> like, you know, like you, like one, at one point, we had a, um, I think an, an entire string ensemble that was in a studio in Belgium it had an entire string ensemble coming in, and working the whole day with them on on a certain piece, and then the the engineer or tape operator at the time, um, he was you know like just clearing the slave tapes like when if you work with two with two uh, reel-to-reel tape machines, one would be the master and one would be the slave. And he was just like doing some rearranging, clearing, but basically what happened, he thought the slave was the master or the other way around, and he erased the entire string session, you know, with these musicians that came in from Brussels into the sticks and... And I have never seen the man in such distress before or after. He just stood in the doorway and he was like completely pale and just like, I have to tell you guys something. And um, I felt so sorry for him. And this is something that only can happen with tape. You know, it was you know we had we had to get the entire gang of musicians back in and reschedule the whole thing. And basically, he worked the whole sessions for free then. But um,
2: yeah. <laughs> yes, <laughs>
3: but, yeah. I
1: mean that's probably a situation that you would not want to recreate. But you're saying it had some advantages to be able to actually delete things like in in terms of decision making so when working with people mm. now, how do you i mean both of you in each of your positions, how do you get to that point of decision making if you can keep like eighty million versions of everything
2: you can't
3: um, <laughs> well it's it is it is very hard i mean you can you can humiliate your client into into the position that it is very important what they are doing at that given time, but it, it, that won't make you very popular as a as a producer. But you can, I, I think you you, need, you know what I'm talking about. I, I mean, do. and we still
2: get great performances. <laughs> and you you, I mean, I, I love I love your last record with Daniela, uh, and and. And there's still, it's full of great performances, and it's still possible to get great performances, but you cannot do the same thing because it's the difference between walking across the Grand Canyon on the high wire without a safety rope and walking Mm. with a safety rope. Both both journeys are mind-blowingly incredible, you know? And we've seen Red Bull do videos of, of extreme sports. Some are protected, some are not. And the, the achievement's the same. If you can walk across the Grand Canyon with a safety rope and you don't need it on a, on a high wire, you know, that's an amazing achievement. But it's different from walking across without a safety rope. Hmm. It's just a different thing.
3: Even, but, though, even though I think it is possible and it also is a, um, you know, a possible goal in, in the creation of art uh, to put that same... Uh, urgency, or, or to put that same danger in your given uh, performance, you know, like you you could, uh, but it's a it's a different it's a different mindset, you know. If you just go like, oh, I'm 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 going to play along, I'm going to jam on this for a while. Basically, that's that's the whole that's the whole thing. It's that also changed since digital. You know, back then there was jamming, and we knew it was jamming. You know, because nobody could afford, you know, to record that whole crap. Now, you can record, you know, like... Every the, little fart. It, yeah, yeah. The, these, you know, like the most ridiculous jams, and I hate that word already, uh, you know, and... And somebody will have to listen to that crap, you know. <laughs> and there'll be there'll be hours and hours and hours of it, you know. So basically I think it it actually is necessary to put yourself in in that mind state in to a certain degree where everything you do or say or sing or play is precious at that moment, you know.
2: Because your energy is precious and your time's precious. And yeah. you get that, and I get it, and we've both worked on that level where I, I where, I've, where you invite a musician to play a, something on a track, or they want, and, and they don't play it a hundred times. They maybe play it once. And you go, oh, thank you, Alex. Thank <laughs> you for coming in and playing the, that, whatever you played on. Thank you, that's great. Or, thanks for playing that organ, or, or and, it, and it's amazing. You know, then there's many great artists who do that, because like Alex, they've learned that that basically if they're in the right state of mind and they've done their morning meditation and they are at peace with the world, they play, or not, they play their solo or their piece in one take. And, and if they do another 25 takes, it's not gonna be any better. So they, they, you short circuit the whole thing. You play it once and everyone That's goes, awesome. And w- mm. that, what a huge time saver that is already! Right there, you've saved like three days of listening to jams.
3: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, there were there were people like that, like the, the late great Chris Haas, who was the uh, analog synthesizer player for Deutsch Amerikanische Freundschaft and Liaison Dangereuse, You know, like the, this wonderful music, and uh, and he had a had a sense of, of this um, immediacy, this 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 magic thing which basically meant if, you, if he would play his synthesizers and you told him, oh, Chrysler, that's great. He said, yeah, really, boop, gone, erased. You know, he would just like take all the cables off yeah, as soon it. as you told him. And when I, whenever I worked with him in, in his later years, I had to record him secretly because I knew if, um, if, if he knew that I was recording him, he would just do, deliberately do crap, you know. Because he wanted to keep exactly that that that, that special kind of live moment, that that danger, that yeah. danger to it, that yeah. unpredictab- unpredictability, unpredictability. Yeah, yeah. Yes, all right.
1: <laughs> I think we should uh, listen to another track that was done, I think, many years before either of you started doing morning meditation. It's not going to have a video you can leave that off if you want to. Um, trigger for Seele Brandt, because you're Absolutely, saying Absolutely, because can... Seele
3: Brandt, l- let me explain first. Seele Brandt was recorded in this room, and, it was, and we recorded it like a theater play, and also like a painting. So basically, all, everything we did was, it's, the whole song was recorded in one take, without any overdubs. It's recorded in this room as the room is, that's that's the theater play part, and the painting part is that all the, the microphones were placed in a way that like Blixer singing, his whispering and his screaming and stuff, Is he actually had to, like in the olden days, he had to move closer and further away from the microphone in in order to get different levels. So basically, you know, if something is louder, it's actually coming closer to you, you know? It's a a great track and you you really hear that room.
1: From your uh, 1985 album Halber Mensch,
3: there's, there's one more, of <laughs> course.
2: Never mind., no, I, I want to say something about that as well, because the, the, um, I love uh, I, I grew up uh, loving I still love much well, classical music. It's a very broad thing, right? Obviously. but anyway. but I love dynamic in music. Mm. And, and one of the awesome things about the Neubauten gig that I saw last Thursday is the huge dynamic in it. And for those people who attend, I mean, everyone's got their own geschmack. You know, you do what everyone should do what they want. But I have really enjoyed hearing that some of the participants' music in Nalepastrasse this afternoon. But the thing that was missing for me in the big picture is dynamic. Um, and, and I'm just flagging that up. If you like dynamic, build it into your compositions. These guys. And building it into the composition back then, and they are still using huge dynamic live now, and to me that's fantastic. Yeah, you know, I loved, I, I fucking love that shit, man.
3: Thank you, <laughs> thank you. No, I, I think dynamics is is very, it's very important because it. Uh, it's, it's about the spectrum and then, you know, we all know about the, uh, the loudness wars and mastering, now that, that people just try to make the, the loudest possible records and the, the mastering engineer of Metallica apparently refused to have his name on the record for the way they wanted the, the music mastered and stuff like that. And I think dynamics are very important and I, and I loved the time when the CD was invented Remember the first CDs, particularly classic classical music CDs, came out, and they had to put a warning, a warning stickers on the CDs. Remember that, saying like uh, "careful, uh, high dynamic range" or yeah. something like that, because people would, you know, they were used to the dynamic range of, of a record, of a normal vinyl record, and then the CD came, and particularly with classical music, you know, it, it would be the, the, you know, like the overture would be very very quiet and stuff like that, and then the actual first, you know, uh, movement would come in and would come in at a, at a volume that would just kill people's uh, stereos. Yeah. and
2: blow the speakers up. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: And that was great that time, and that's, I mean, that's the good thing, about vinyl, uh, the good thing about digital is that you can that you can uh, conserve a, a much higher dynamic range.
2: There's, yeah, there's lots of awesome things about um, about digital. Our our esteemed uh, colleague, uh, not co- I don't know, a fellow worker, Mr. Brian Eno says that anyone who romanticises working on tape yeah. never did it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. you
2: know, Because (laughs) because what we're talking about, I feel, is the analogue process, which can be a room, like you're working with Neubauten now, a room full of people and effects and amps and instruments. Okay, it's going to digital, but Mm. the creativity comes from the... uh, a certain part of the creativity comes And another thing about dynamic I wanted to say is, it's interesting, because in film, Dynamic is really big still, even in mainstream Hollywood film. Mm. Uh, if you you know, if you watch Star Wars, mm. uh, sometimes it's really bright. I mean, I'm not talking about the sound; I'm talking about oh. the image. Sometimes it's really dark. Duh. Mm. You know, so they have a really dark bit for ages, for like yeah. five minutes, and then pff, it goes all really light, and that's yeah. really commercial and really exciting. Mm. You know, it's kind of got a bit lost in music because you know everyone's trying to make it slam out the fucking iPhone. Don't get me
3: started, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, but also, I would add, if you romanticize working with tape, you never worked with tape with a hangover. (laughs) You know, um, because that was the whole thing about, you know, like, if you had to, and again, the danger of of the, the medium, you know, if you, you would, rehearse if you would rearrange music you would first record it on a quarter inch tape on a schnürsenkel and then you would rehearse your edits there and then later on you would do the edits on the actual quarter inch tape no, on the actual uh, on the on the actual 2 inch tape which on one hand, was easier to edit because it was two inches that thick and not like the quarter inch just that thick, but it would be the real deal. And if you fucked that up, then you would be in trouble, you know, if you fucked that edit up. And basically, I remember when I had to cut tapes and I, and I did that for quite a while before actual sampling was invented that we would cut tape loops and stuff. And it could be a very shaky business, you know, like and, and I... um and I also did a lot of tape editing for cassette tapes. I would open, I would open cassette cassette tapes up and actually edit the um, the tape in a in a cassette too. You know, so yeah, there's nothing to be romanticized no, about that. There.
2: No, there's not. No, and that's that's not that's really super challenging. And, and yeah. uh, that's one of the joys of two track. I mean, ed- now any edit is possible, right? Any edit is now possible, which is incredibly... Oh yeah, and and you would do
3: crossfades by actually cutting the tape... Diagonally. uh, Diagonally, you know, right? Which was difficult too. It's
1: it's good that you mentioned uh, (laughs) the hangover, because there's another kind of dynamic that I want to talk to you about, and that is sort of the dynamic in a group, playing in a band, and Mm. also between the producer and a band. Mm -hmm. Because the the track we just heard, Seele is on this album that is, I think, usually referred to as being an album about a night on amphetamine, and the hangover that goes with it, which is sort of the track that we just heard. Um, How how would you as a producer have stepped in that dynamic of a band who has been on drugs, as is no secret either, how would you, would you set up certain times? Would you, would you think about that at all, or did things just happen? You laugh, which makes me assume that well, things just idea, happened. You idea. tell him,
2: Jonesy. No, no, I'm not laughing The idea of telling Neubauten what to do is absurd. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's just absolutely absurd. And anyway, I'm not that kind of producer. So we found a way to work. One particular, I mean, this was, you know, I, there was a lot, of, there was a different, Uh, we were all a lot younger, okay? And and I'm not saying, you know, don't do drugs, kids, okay? I have to say that, you know, do not do drugs. But, but, but... (laughs) <laughs> when I worked with, I don't know who, I remember working with Neubauten very long hours, and I would like to work very long hours as well, I'd, I was already through my, am- I had a heavy amphetamine phase in London, which was not good for me. I was already through that, I'd stopped using amphetamines because I thought, fuck, I'm never doing this again, it's all- I nearly died probably, so it's not good. So, because I'm excess- excessive, you know. So, so anyway, so I'm working with them. There was some stimulants being taken for sure, and one of the really super positive things about it was we'd work very late at night, and then usually with a normal production, you'd work very late at night, and the next day you'd rock up to the studio at 2 in the afternoon or something, or, or, or 1 in the afternoon, and you'd wait around for hours for the band to turn up but I remember working with you guys, and then uh, we'd work till three in the morning. And, <laughs> and we were say, still there. <laughs> yes, you were still there, waiting at the studio door the next morning at 10 o'clock, because you'd been in, you know, on the town all night. That yeah. was incredible, yeah, so you know. You know
3: let's, let's put it that way, you know, like that album is not about amphetamine, it's about never going to sleep, and delusions of grandeur. <laughs> Which boils down to the same thing, but let's yeah. put it that way.
2: Yeah, yeah. So, so obviously it's super challenging, you know, and you have to remember that there, it was a time when there was a lot more money available for, for people like us to play about in spaces like this which is awesome privilege for, for us and part, huge growth experience for us, we learned so much. We formed lifelong friendships as well, so it's incredibly important to our personal story. But there was, because record, because people still bought music, and music's obviously now free, because people still bought music, there was more money available, even for a, couple of, a bunch of weirdos like us, to be able to have, to work in a space like this. So, we, so all I'm saying now is a lot of the younger groups I work with now, um, are, are very focused on getting the most out of a studio time uh, in a way that we just thought. It was self-evident we could have three weeks in Hansa to make it, re- you know what I mean? Yeah. It's a kind of different vibe. It was, and then if we hadn't finished after three weeks, someone had phone the record company and say, oh, can we have another week, please, or something, and they'd go, yeah, no problem. You know, and that never happens to me now. <laughs> And also,
3: I, I think in order, you know, like I, I cannot emphasize that enough that um, that ritualistic aspect of things, not only working with analog, when we talked about earlier, but but also in general when you produce music or when you produce art, you you know, as it is in drugs, you have to have the the set and the setting, and the same counts for for making art. I think so you have to have the the right setting, the right people around you, and, and, you, and it's that, that ritualistic aspect where you say, I do this now, and in order to do this now, I prepare myself in this and that way, and I, I remember, there, um, and there can obviously be great substitutes for, for drugs that, that also give you that same sense of, of the presence uh, or the present. Um, like, you know, now nowadays I, I light some incense, you know, and I know because I have lit that incense, this is the time when I am going to do certain things. You know, and I set, I set the occasion for that. And um, I remember Gareth, uh, Fixing a masala chai for us in a different studio in the Tritono studio, you know back in the day, and that was a preparation. Masala chai is this, this like uh, Indian Indian spice tea, and it needed it needed to boil or, or cook for for hours or days or something you know and Gareth would would um, put on, you know, prepare this tea for us and and boil it for for hours and hours and And I remember feeling that this was, you know, like appropriate preparation for something great to happen. And that's you know, so it's very similar and that and if in the the drug culture might give you an entrance into this way of thinking. You know, not, without necessarily having to stick to those stupid substances that make you do stupid things.
1: I spoke to um, a musician the other day, uh, a jazz player called Baddada Leo Smith, and he's Muslim, and he mm-hmm. told me that um, in his belief he's taught to step out of the house in the morning with his right foot first, and what he actually does when he goes on stage is stepping on stage with the right foot first for the sole reason that that means he's doing it intentful. He is being aware of like now he is stepping on stage. Mm-hmm. Because we talked a lot about, um, we compared a lot like the technology back in the days and nowadays. Uh, would you think that that is maybe posing a problem for people who work in bedroom studios? It's kind of hard to like step from your bed to your desk intentful if it's right next to each other. Mm. How, how do you create intentfulness?
2: Through, through physical and mental preparation. I mean, it's perfectly possible to, to do, you know, a stu- to me, a, a recording studio is still a wonderful space and a great privilege, and you need a wonderful space. You've got a great space in Berlin, haven't you, with Boris? You need, if, you, if, you, if, a, if, a, if a bunch of people want to play together, you need a space. But I, you know, I keep, for me, a recording studio is like a state of mind now where the laptop is the recording studio. Mm-hmm. There was a transitional moment in my life where my laptop became as powerful as the Hansa Mix Room. And I remember it quite well. I thought, oh, look, everything that I had in the Hansa Mix Room is now on my laptop.
1: When, uh, when was that?
2: Four years ago, maybe. And, and that was kind of mind-blowing mind in, in some way. So. That studios exist everywhere, so the only thing the only thing we can take responsibility for is ourselves now, and say, "Am I in the right space to enter my studio and do my best work?" Then I can do that sometimes in my bedroom, and I can do that sometimes in, in, somewhere else, in in my little shed that I work in in London, or in a recording studio. I did a piece recently where. We collaborated remotely with Hamburg, Berlin, and London. And on the final day, everyone was working and feeding into the final mix. And that was incredible. And there was no studio involved on my end. I mean, there was, my laptop. I was in a bedroom, essentially. I think. Physical and mental preparation is hugely important and that can be different for everyone. I write a journal And I've recently I've started I do it almost every day. It's kind of my meditation. It's here actually It's pretty precious to me. I goes almost it's kind of part of my life and Recently, I've started lighting a candle so in the morning I take my my green tea, I mean, it's just old hippie shit, really, sorry, (laughs) Uh, anyway, I take green tea and I light a candle and then I go deep into myself and my journal and then magic happens and then I emerge and then I go to my day and then magic happens.
3: Yeah, I mean, after all, magic, imagination, you know, we're just picturing the things, you know, and like we do that with a a certain uh, preparation. Yeah, and and also the the, that laptop thing. um, A few years ago, uh, in two thousand three, that's not a few years ago. That's many years ago now. Anyway, um, I decided that I that I didn't want to work in in a studio anymore, and I decided to make a a record a road record like like a film director makes a road movie, and there are certain parameters for a road movie. A road movie. Doesn't have a fixed script or a script with no fixed ending, mostly or oftentimes. Um, it is done during a journey, obviously, and it is done um, with involving the people that you meet on that journey. And I decided to make a record that way. And that was a very, a very similar process or a very different process, like, like that, also. That, that one can has to apply in, in modern times, because now I could work with all kinds of very different musicians that I would never get into the same room in into Berlin, because they were from completely different genres of music, or they would, would live in completely different corners of the world, but I could have them play on the same music, and also I would... Record something, it means I would collect something, pick up something at one end of the world, and while I was carrying it to the next place, I was, you know, fucking about with it, you know, uh, processing it, you know, like turning it. So I would turn that actual event during the journey into a different event and present the next person with it who would then add something to it, which I again would process during the journey. And that all happened, obviously, in my little uh, piece of digital equipment, you know.
2: That's a really interesting way of working. And it's one way of tricking yourself. I made a a record with my friend Nick Hook last year, which is called Spiritual Friendship. And we realized very early, it started off as, Uh, a complete experiment, and it stayed an experiment, we realized very early for us, at that time in our life, he he lives in New York and I live in London, the only way we could do it was by being in the same room. So we committed to the process, and our time was very precious to us because we had no money, basically, and every day we spent working together, we were not generating any money, and, and so we didn't waste each other's time. So we constantly tried to be Hugely productive, focused, centered, present, you know, phones off, please, internet off, please, be present, you know. So, so and that worked for us. Hey, you know, we, we, we heard a, a, the final track from the album in our earlier on, but it wasn't anything like loud enough, so don't judge the record from that.
1: <laughs> I wanna listen to uh, one other track that um, we spoke about earlier actually, Kein Bestandteil sein of another album of yours, the second that you did together, Fünf auf der nach oben offenen Richterskala.
3: But this was, was a, um, a, an experimental setup that we did in this room also. Mufti um, is, is drumming on uh, one of the uh, Hansa chairs that they used to have, you know, like old school chairs. He's, he's drumming on a chair and we had set up an array of plastic tubes, maybe like 16 different plastic tubes, long plastic tubes that you get in the Baumarkt, you know, in the home improvement store. And um, each with a microphone. And, and Gareth had, had um, you know, like leveled everything nicely and Blixer was, was sitting at the, at the mixing desk turning the faders of each on and off, switching on the different, the different plastic tubes, and of course every, different, every tube, every different length has a different key. So he was actually playing a melody on the, on the mixing desk, while Mufti was just playing on the same chair, and that's what you hear.
1: I remember a story that involved a gun. Is that actually on this track?
3: No, that was, that, that's on no track. There's a, there's a really funny story about when we recorded Yugung, uh, Feed My Ego, or the track that uh, involved, that was about Feed My Ego, you know, delusions of grandeur, staying awake, that kind of stuff. So, in order to do, and it was the first track that uh, involved um, sampling and a sequencer, you know, yeah, the Yugung. Exactly. And uh, so we we recorded all these different. You know, we recorded the blades basically that we used to edit the tapes before. Uh, we recorded the blades the blades on different surfaces. You know, basically in the bathroom on the toilet, on the top of the toilet bowl, on cassette covers. You know, like we wanted this particular sound for the recording. I don't know why. And um, Andrew. Uh, had a gun he brought a gun to the session that that would shoot blanks and as we were in the bathroom recording the blades i thought it would be a really fun idea to shoot to shoot that gun you know so to give everyone in the control room a, a jump <laughs> and um, and uh,
2: because we've got the microphones on really loud because we're yes, recording
3: uh, the, something the very quiet really tiny sound yeah. you know and I thought it would be such a great idea, you know, just to <laughs> shoot the gun. And um, so I thought it might be even better if I open the toilet bowl and then shoot into the toilet bowl, which would is, you know, if you know something about acoustics and physics, is the most stupid thing you can possibly do because the sound of the bang gets bundled in the toilet bowl, kind of, you know, like in a you know, it it gets amplified, bundled and thrown back at you at least ten times louder than the actual gun is already. So basically I shot in there and I was my, my hearing just went off like like that. And I couldn't hear anything. The day was done for me, and um, the guys in the the guys in the control room they didn't even notice that I was doing it because because their equipment just went that it just shut down. It just went, <laughs> you know. They didn't even hear the bang because you know, and I was just coming in and there and and said so, like, I know that was really stupid and I can't hear anything. And I, and I walked out of the studio and I, I remember walking down Kötner Straße to Anhalter Bahnhof crying, <laughs> thinking, you know, like, oh, I'm so stupid, I will never get, and I was so happy when the, when the next day my hearing came back, finally.
2: <laughs> I mean, I uh, just, that, we, we always, I mean, uh, we, we still experiment all the time. This is not just about the past. <laughs> Yes. we still we still experiment all yes. the time
3: let's emphasize you know, that.
2: because otherwise we can't do anything new and and um, we 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 never w- we never wanted to repeat ourselves i never want to repeat myself but alex I, I'm, I i think most all the artists i know don't want to repeat themselves they constantly want to try and do something new so we're always experimenting so it's kind of self-evident with the pipes We've dreamed up a new experiment. They, the guys made an awesome installation in this room. There are some photographs somewhere. It was like, you know, a gallery of hanging metal and all kinds of, it was amazing. And that was the process. No one knew exactly how that was gonna turn out. But it was all about experimenting. And I, I, I feel that's really, it's obvious. It's important to underline, you know, our lives have been lives full of creative experiments, which means many of them, Turn out to be not usable, but that's all right.
1: Do you still approach sessions like this? Would you would you try to add experiments to a recording sessions, even if you felt that the band wouldn't maybe be in a too experimental mood?
2: I don't seem to attract artists who don't want to experiment. I would seem to work with like people who aren't very interested in experimenting, uh, because because that's that's just what keeps it fresh. You know, we did. I, did, I mean, it could be it can be. Uh, it's, it's just a new experiment for a new team. Sometimes that can involve using three ideas that have been used in a different location by someone else, three, you know, that you put together and you go, oh, look, if we did that and that and that, wow, we've never done that, let's try that. I'm not, you know, I'm not, you know, I thought lots of the work that I did early in my career was completely original, but it probably wasn't. It was just built on something that someone else, but it was new to me and new to the people I was working with, and that's like super important. Because if you feel you've made something truly new, that's a wonderful thing. It's like a, you know, a new life. A A little life has emerged into the world.
1: You've talked about this uh, building quite a bit with this being used as a recording room and then sort of a mixing room somewhere. If if we think about maybe this last two Neubarton albums that you did here, how many people were actually involved? Like how many people had to work on this for it to work with so many different rooms?
3: See, that's, uh, that's the difference between those days and, and nowadays too. Um, back then you had all these, um, people involved that, that had to bear with us in a way. Nowadays, when, when I do things or when I go into a creative mode or when I, when I work with Danielle or something like that, we have the ability to lock ourselves away and, and get deep into, into some experimentation and we don't, you know, we don't have to apologize to anyone afterwards. Back in the days here, you know, it would be the poor tape op- operators that we tortured, and um, I, some, once in a while I meet meet some of the old guys that used to work here. It's like, oh yeah, I remember you, <laughs> and um, and see, that's that's they love that's, you, man. They love you, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's that's uh, that's the difference. Also, um, but that's also what makes a a great studio like this, or like um, like Connie's studio, Connie Plank's studio in in Volperrat in in the um, near near Cologne in Bergischen Land. Um, that, that was also one of these these cult places. That and I consider these places. And please um, forgive me for these these uh, you know semi religious references. But I think this actually is a temple, or yeah. this is this is what it was for us. And and um, and there. There are a few studios nowadays that are still around that would qualify by my book to be a temple of creation you know like like this place uh, used to be, and therefore, I think it is important, and, and this is what what Gareth is trying to say, I believe, by uh, reminding you all of the fact that these stories from the past are the stories from the past but then what we do today is to um transport that that energy that we had back in the in those days or that we kind of um try to achieve that same intensity with different tools on different levels and we should never stop you know Trying to, to do this, you know. Once, as soon as we start to uh, work with any sort of formula, and as soon as we start to, to not take any risks, you know, we might as well do something else. Yes. You know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> because what you did a few years ago, um oh, sorry, is it's like you you kind of embarked on a journey, on well a continuous journey a few years ago with your partner and yeah. your musical partner as well, Danielle, and you are you don't have a home anymore, so you work from on the road. Do you do you do that to create that intensity? To Create from that spot.
3: Absolutely. I mean, that, that was a, a transformational process. I mean, because in order to do that, it started out that we were, we, we rented this house here in Berlin that, that contained our studios back and from, we lived there in that building from, from 2003 to 2010 for seven years until we realized this is ridiculous. We have this wonderful building that we rent that even has a garden and everything, you know, but we can't have animals, we can't really take care for the garden, and we can't really enjoy the house because we travel all the time in order to pay the rent for it, you know, because we couldn't, you know, Berlin was just not happening for us at the time. And we uh, decided to go on an 18-month journey in order to relocate. In order to do that, we had to get rid of all our material belongings. That means we divided everything in three. We, We, one part, went into the trash, or we sold it. One part, uh, one part we sold. One part went in the trash, and one part we put in storage. But basically, we had to get rid of everything, and that was a very transformational process. That's a, that's a really great. Uh, that's a really great. I can recommend it. Try to get rid of your stuff, and it's you know the truth will set you free. I tell you, um, <laughs> you know, because you start to realize uh, all the time you spend in. In actually earning the money to purchase the stuff then you have that you then have to take care for, that you know you 're responsible for that stuff, and once you get rid of it, you feel a lot better and but anyhow, we didn 't find anything after eighteen months, so uh, this is seven years ago, so for seven years now we 've been traveling the world, and uh, we learned a lot about the world and we learned a lot about our great creative process and abilities by living that way.
2: I want to say something about connection, because you said how many people were involved in, in some of these, this work that we were privileged to do, okay? So that's a big question, because I think in society there's an idea that we're disconnected from each other and we all live in selfish little worlds, right? So, we worked in this room. Now, this room was built by 200 guys, maybe, in 1920. I don't know how many people built it.
1: 1913.
2: Whenever it was built. It's an old room. That's a lot of people already. People grew the food that we ate whilst we were making the album. People delivered Strom und Wasser and people took the shit away from the toilets. So, that's a lot of people already. Someone made the mixing desk that we worked on. A lot of, a big team of people, Neve, Neve in the 70s, probably 250 people in the company. Someone shipped the mixing desk from London to Berlin. Someone cabled it in. Someone built all the microphones and on and on and on and on, man. It's a huge network of human collaboration in each of these pieces. Now, someone will say, if you run Gamer, you will say that the, the right of copyright belongs to the person who wrote the chords or the lyrics. Mm-hmm. But there's a massive human endeavor goes into all this. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I, uh, I, I heard a wonderful spiritual teacher, um, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh speak, where he said, when he wakes up in the morning and he washes his face in the basin, he is very present man. If you're, he's, he's ill now. He's very present. So he is aware of the fact that the water that he's washing his face has fallen from the cloud into the mountain and been, come all the way to his harm, You know, so I'm just very aware of that. It's a, it's a very big question. So how many people are involved in recording Zeele Brent, I don't know, 25 million or something? I don't know, a lot of people are involved. It wasn't just me and Alex and the band and the assistant, you know.
3: And then you know, it's just you know, it's it's a professional, it's a professional hazard, or as as you an occupational hazard, as you might put it, because we work in, we work in the field of vibrations, you know. where we you know, music is is vibrations, yeah. and then you know, science knows by now that we are all vibrations anyway. So, um, you know, there's no real separation between you or me or him or us, you know, so we're all involved in the same thing.
2: Yeah, thank you. And I want to just amplify what Alex said, I did a a similar thing, My, I had a little workroom, studio in London, that I did the same, not the same thing as you did, it got too expensive for me, okay, same kind of time maybe, 2005, something like that, it just got too expensive, so I did, I sold as much as I could. What I couldn't say I put in the trash. Almost everything went, apart from some microphones that I bought in the 80s here, that Mm -hmm. I thought, these are beautiful, they don't take up much space, I'm still making music, I'm going to keep these. Everything went. And then I rebuilt my toolkit with what I felt I needed. Mm -hmm. And that's changed the vibrational energy in my workspace massively Mm -hmm. now, because everything now in my workspace I use. And before, yeah. a lot of it, I was just like working to keep it repaired so that if I wanted to use it, it would be working. You know what I mean? Yes, yes, I ch- everything changed. It's really great process getting rid of shit and mm-hmm. kind of rebooting. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: I thought it would be nice to um, briefly speak about the Amanda Galas because um, this is an artist who's going to play here in Berlin in two days uh, and who both of you knew in the 80s, and you, Gareth, work with, you look shocked. You're trying to get in there to change over to the... um, Who you, I think, must have met around the same time as Neubarton, is that right?
3: uh, Diamanda came to Berlin on a um, a -A -A DAAD grant in in the 80s which is um, a Deutsche Akademischer Austauschdienst. That means she, she actually got funded to, to live here for a while and to write music and that's, that's how we met her. And um, yeah, and uh, struck up a bit of a friendship during that time and, uh, and she worked with Garrison. We, we were also label mates. We were, uh, we were all on, on mute records at the time.
2: That was, and that is still a thing, and, and, and uh, it, that's a family thing. Can be, you know, being on the same label means, means something, even on a label as diverse as Mute Records. I think people are aware of the fact that, in fact, I met Diamanda because um, her brother, who's now dead, uh, um, uh, was a gay man, and uh, she, had struck up a friendship with another gay mute artist, Andy Bell from Erasure. And Andy had said how much he enjoyed working with me and how sensitive I was to capturing the human voice, or whatever, something very nice. I love Andy, he's a dear friend. So, Diamanda thought, ah, that sounds interesting. Maybe that's the dude I need to work on my next album. So I met him, in fact, I met Diamanda through the label. So that's all I'm saying, following underlining that what you said. And obviously she's an awesome woman and I heard her play, the first time I heard her play in Berlin, I was like at the back of the hall somewhere, and I was tears were just running down my cheeks because it was so emotionally cathartic, I suppose. I don't know, it was very, very powerful. And we had the great I mean, it's, it's just a pleasure and a privilege, you know. This temple has been somewhat a bit desecrated, actually, because now it's turned into like a corporate meeting space, and I know, I know we're all kind of artists and musicians here, so we're not feeling too corporate, we're feeling pretty cool. But it, you could, uh, the way, I'm, I'm sorry, but I feel the temple's been desecrated. This is no longer a temple of sound.
1: Uh, I have one question regarding that. Does it matter to you, or did it matter to you that you were at one point not able to see the wall anymore from here? Is it sort of, you know, people like refer to the studio and they're like, David Bauer said it in so many interviews, that you could actually see the wall separating both parts of Berlin from here and that it mattered to him. Did it matter to you when it came down? Were you feeling that this space lost something?
2: Me personally, no, it didn't matter to me. I don't think I was working here when the, I think I've moved on somewhere else. But also the, the um, you know, whether also, it wasn't just. It was very desolate, wasn't it? Potsdamer Platz was very empty. A oh, so. wasteland.
3: There was nothing there out there. there. You could, you could, you could watch. You know, that it went on for, for miles. There was nothing there. Um. Which was, which obviously was, you know, a great kind of view to have. Like upstairs, there's these balconies, and you, you know, like you could, uh, you could. Take a view.
2: It's, it beats looking at the Sony building or something. For me, anyway, it was, it was better. <laughs>
3: yes, yeah, so, uh, absolutely. Even though you know, I, d- I don't think it's too bad actually. That that Sony Center. I think I, I kind of I, I grew to like that architecture. I've been to the
2: movies in this, in, in there. I think.
3: Yes, yes, yes. Which it's, I it's like yes, absolutely. Yeah. It's like being a, and it's the only cinema that plays only original version. There you movies. go. That's probably why I
2: went. Yeah. Uh, um, I but can I take it back. <laughs> <laughs> but um,
3: the the thing is, uh, it it obviously, and we, we, we knew at the time when when the when that happened, when the re, not when the reunification happened, but but when the wall came down, that it would obviously be a game changer. It would obviously change our lives forever, and. Um, And it did, and uh, the city that I was born in and uh, raised in doesn't exist anymore. I mean, that's that's just an incredible thing to be able to say for yourself, you know. Well, the city I was born in doesn't exist anymore. No, it's not there anymore, it's a different city now.
1: Nor does the country, in a way.
3: And nor does the country. yeah, no, no, it, it, that's, that's a thing, um, I, was, I was born in the west, so the country does still exist, but the city doesn't exist. If I was born in the east, then the country wouldn't exist, either.
2: But, but uh, that's, and I know you get this, that's a kind of thing, everything is change. Everything is change. I am change, you are change. She is changed. We are all changed. Life is changed. Mm-hmm. So in a way, the city's changed is all we're saying. Of mm-hmm. course it's not the same. London's not the same city that I was in. No way is it the same city. I, I guess West Berlin's changed more somehow at this stage of its development. But, you know, um, uh, you know the British changed, changed Dresden profoundly in the Second World War. You know, cities are change, yeah. you know. The Germans changed the east end of London massively. You know, it's not the same city as it was. Mm. But, but then, once you accept that life is changed, we could say, well, actually, it is the same city, you know, I'm the same person that I was when I was two years old, but I'm not. No. But I am. <laughs> so, life for me is paradox. So I embrace paradox as I've got older. I've understood that it's not black or white. It's black and white. It's not yes or no. very often the most important things in my life. It's yes and no. Particle and wave.
1: Should we give those two a big uh, (laughs) round of applause?
0: Hey, this is todd burns again thanks for listening to couch wisdom before you go i just wanted to take a moment to tell you a bit about the red bull music academy the whole thing is a world traveling series of music workshops and events if you want to find out more check us out at Red Bull redbullmusicacademy.com also if you liked what you heard on this podcast and you're not already subscribed please go for it and consider rating us while you're at it it really helps other people discover the podcast Finally, there's a whole other world of great music programming like this to check out at redbullradio.com. Okay, enough URLs for now. Thanks for listening.